Morning, everybody. I'm Shane. It's great to be with you. I thought we might start our time of Bible teaching with a little bit of a game this morning. I call this double or half. You need to vote at home. So just practice that. It's double or half. Now, if someone at home's not playing, you make sure they play along with you. I'm going to suggest a few things that you might have, and I want you to vote whether you would rather have double or half. Double or half. Here we go. Your personal wealth. Double or half. What do you vote? Your physical capacity. Double or half. Your intellectual capacity. Double or half. The duration of my sermon this morning. Double or half. Okay, now that you've voted on all of those, I suspect nobody voted, well, a few people might have, but not many of us would have voted half. I suspect for maybe all bar one, we were all going, yeah, double would be a better option. Why is that? Well, I suspect in our individuality, there, there might have been different reasons, but I suspect for most of us, the idea of going to half would have left us a little bit underdone. I couldn't get by with half my intellectual capacity. That would be a real stopper, a real blockage for me. My physical capacity, half, that would be really difficult as well. Why? I suspect the reason that not wanting half of this would be that we would lose some of our independence, right? We might have to become dependent upon others just to get basic things done. It's worth reflecting on because this morning as we continue in James, we have to talk about faith. One of the things that's just essential to understanding a faith conversation is to understand it's a conversation about dependence. And desiring dependence is not something that I suspect comes naturally to many of us. Most of us like to be independent, to be competent, to be able to do it myself since we were age two. But when we approach faith, we approach a conversation about willingly being dependent. Worth noting. Here's something else that I learned about faith, perhaps from my childhood. Now, I am what uh, in Afrikaans uh, you call a lat lamaki. That means a late lamb. The Australian translation is I'm an accident. My brother and sister are much older than me. And so as a child, I got to see my brother reach his full height. My brother is six foot tall. So as a child growing up, my desire was to be Strangely enough, exactly what I am today. In the old measure, six foot one. I just needed to get him by one inch. Because when you're growing up, you want to exceed what your big brother has done. Thinking about that is really helpful to me as I approach James because I think about this man who wrote this book. How tough must it be when your big brother's name is Jesus? The one they call Christ. The one they call the Lord. Hey, if you thought your mum worships your big brother, spare a thought for James. His mum and dad legit worship his big brother. Now imagine when you're James growing up, you think like I might have, I want to be just one better than my brother. Sooner or later, this man James would have realized I'm not going to be better than my brother. I'm going to have to trust in my brother. At some point, James had to realize this is bigger than me. This is beyond me. I don't have to take a bold step of trusting in someone outside of myself. He would have to trust his big brother as his Lord and his Savior. It's a second important element of faith. It's about trust, about getting beyond ourselves 
and placing ourselves in the care, in the dependent, being dependent on someone or something outside of ourselves. James, the man God chose to write these words through, gets how critically important faith is. And he gets, surely from that kind of an upbringing, he gets how counter-natural it is to want to be dependent upon another, to want to be outside of myself and trusting beyond my own natural capacities. And so James, knowing these things, makes faith the central theme of his letter. And so as we are in a series On this letter written by James, it makes sense that it's called Living Faith because it's about having a living faith. James' concern as he writes to his original audience and to us today is that we would have a healthy, life-directing, relationship-building, action-driving, life-transforming, healthy, saving faith. You see it as the chapters unfold. Let me give you a recap if you miss them. Chapter 1, there's the challenge of circumstances that come our way, those difficult things. And James, my summary is, he says, look, celebrate even in the tough times because tough times work really well for maturing your faith and producing endurance in your faith. He says, look, basically, a mature faith is a much greater source of joy than even a pleasant life. A mature faith counts for more joy than even a pleasant and happy life. So we come into chapter 2. James, again, he's thinking about faith and he says, look, when you choose and judge, and look, it's inevitable that you'll have to discern and make decisions from time to time. In fact, the scriptures call you to discern, to judge, to make decisions. When you do that, you know, you really want to make sure that you're guided by, chapter 2, verse 1, your faith in the glorious Lord, rather than any distorted preference or, or personal favoritism that you might hold. Find out what God likes best and go with that. And today the lesson is consistent. Ensure your faith is in the driver's seat, driving how you feel about circumstance, driving how you choose, and now driving you to action. Make sure faith is in the driver's seat, driving you to action. And so today's passage begins like this. James essentially tells us you need to understand there's a kind of faith, a such a faith, that whilst it might make you feel great on the inside, this kind of faith is actually useless before God when it comes to salvation. Let's make sure I'm representing James correctly. Hear these words from verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Now, the original language this is written in is Koine Greek, which is a wonderfully technical language. And this question is written in such a way that implies the answer. The answer is no. This faith cannot save them. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? You don't need to know ancient Greek to know that that's just useless. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is in fact dead. Now, a couple of things that are important for us to understand as we study James, particularly if you spent a little bit of time in the Bible. 
you'll notice that this passage talks about deeds. Now, not everyone reads from the same translation of Scripture. Perhaps if you're reading a Bible like an ESV, you would see the language of works in the place of deeds. As I've been speaking, I've been using the language of action. It's important to acknowledge that if you're reading works, this conversation is a different conversation to a conversation had elsewhere in the Scriptures, particularly by the Apostle Paul, which is about works of the law. Works of the law is about how someone is performing under the Jewish law. This is not that conversation. This is a general conversation about what your faith causes you to do or not do. Important that we note that so that we're not confused. So what James is telling us is that faith that does not drive action is actually dead. And sadly, so is the believer. Faith that cannot endure challenge, we've already learned, is immature. Faith that is easily influenced by favoritism is not focused on the Lord. And now faith that does not drive action is unable to receive God's good gift of salvation from hell for heaven. And it leaves the believer quite simply as dead as the faith itself. James needs us to understand this better. God needs us to understand this. And we need to understand this. And to do it, James gives us a bit of an outline of what faith looks like in the common world. He gives us probably three examples, which I've called these. First, you've got dead faith. Second, you've got what I've called dirty deeds. And third, you've got what I'm going to call demonic faith. It's important as we approach verses 18 and 19, where these come up, that we understand well how James is speaking. Now, in technical language, this is called a diatribe. I'm not a technical kind of guy, so let's uh, go with something more basic. What James says is, look, people are saying these sorts of things about faith. If you get around, you'll hear these sorts of statements. And as you look at verses 18, you'll see that some people are saying, I have faith, others have deeds. Just to make sure we don't miss what's going on, let me do something just a little bit silly. James says, when you get around and talk to different people in the street about their faith, they'll say different things. You get some who are out there saying, I have faith and that's great. I believe and it's all good. Others are a little bit more excited about just how strong and how activist they are. Well, I have deeds. I have faith. I have deeds. I have faith. I have. And this is the conversation that's going on. It's a bit of a spectrum as we consider how people approach what actual true saving faith is. Here's what James has to say. First, there is dead faith. This is the faith that simply says, I'm a believer. I have faith. Now, often if you find yourself down this end of the spectrum, probably James isn't your favorite book because it can be a bit challenging about what you actually do. I suspect this is where I come from. Look, there's not been a day in my life that I didn't believe that God was God. He had a son called Jesus and he made me. However, I didn't come to be a follower of Jesus until I was 16 years of age. In my story, when people started, friends of mine started to challenge my thoughts about God, I thought, why are you even challenging me? I believe. It's all good. I don't deny any of this stuff. And when they started to bring to bear some of the things that I would believe on how I should therefore respond to my belief, I thought, this is just cramping me. This is crowding me. I believe. Isn't that enough? 
we're right to say it's not about what we do. We get nervous at these sorts of conversations. Sometimes we say, look, I just believe. I wouldn't want to be legalistic. Sometimes we say things like, we need to be more gracious. And we confuse grace as license. We confuse grace as, oh, just let it go. And we don't want to contend for the things that we truly believe are right or wrong. And contend without condemnation. That's what true grace is. And so we say, look, isn't it just okay to believe? James' response is this, verse 18. Show me your faith without works. It's almost like a schoolyard challenge. It's like, okay, go, go, go. Show me your faith without works. The point is, you can't. You cannot demonstrate your faith if there is no action that comes from them. I remember as a child learning the sensations of being in a moving car. And I've watched my kids as they grow up also learn that. Have you ever stopped quickly in the car and maybe something that's not anchored flies forward? And that's why we wear seatbelts. I remember once one of my children asked me, how come when we stop quickly things in the car fly forward? Why would they ask that? Because when you sit in a car traveling at 60 kilometers an hour, you don't feel like you're doing 60 kilometers an hour, particularly if the windows are closed. You're just sitting still. Slam on the brakes real hard and you realise that you, along with the car, are moving at 60 kilometres an hour and so the things that are not anchored down fly forward, demonstrating that that car was in a state of velocity, of movements. This is the, the, the demonstration that something is happening, challenging the sensation you might have had that I'm just sitting still. All the more when you sit on a jumbo jet doing 900 kilometers an hour, feeling like you're just sitting there having dinner. In the same way, if your faith doesn't actually change anything about how you think, how you decide, and how you act, can you really be sure that you have any faith at all? If someone was to slam the brakes on hard in your faith journey, would anything fly forward? Or are you in fact standing still? It's worth asking the question. The next example that James gives us is another important one. I've called this dirty deeds. He says, look, out there, and it's worth understanding verse 18 correctly, this is an example of the things people say. Out there you have people saying, I have faith. You have others who say, look, I have deeds. I'm doing the stuff and that's great. Maybe if you find yourself along the spectrum of, yeah, I'm one of the activist Christians. I have deeds. I do the things. You might love James because you read this book and go, yes, so practical. It's got the stuff that will get us moving. And that's good. But be careful. James speaks back to the one who says, I have deeds and says, I will show you my faith by my deeds. He doesn't say, I'm really excited to show you my deeds. They're not valuable to him. What he wants to show you is his faith. It's always about faith. He says, I will show you my faith, not so we can tally up my scoreboard and see just how well I've done. I'll show you my deeds just like looking at the speedometer to see that I'm actually moving and it's the actual movement that matters. And what is the movement? The movement is faith. I want you to know about my faith, is what James is saying. 
The works are only demonstrative. They're just a sign that the faith is alive. Here's where we've got to be really careful with James. The message is not do more stuff. Do more of the Christian things. Look better on the scoreboard. That's not James's message. Central to James right throughout the book is faith. Maybe we can think about it like this. Think of a fruit tree. Better, think of yourself as a fruit tree. All right? We are all fruit trees. We're orange trees in an orchard. And uh, you've heard from the farmer that he's looking for orange trees that produce oranges. Now you look around and you see all the orange trees around you and they've got oranges coming off them. Some are even dropping oranges. They're, they're, they're doing really well. And there you are. And you look at your branches and you think, Struth, I don't have a lot of oranges in me. You notice one of the farm helpers walking by. And you say to the farm helper, because you're a tree who can talk, uh, you say to the farm helper, Hey, farm helper, I know that the farmer's looking for trees with lots of fruit on them, so would you, would you, you know, run down to the market, buy a bag of oranges, come back and duct tape those oranges to me, so I will be one of those trees that has lots of fruit. Hopefully, as a talking tree, that's not what you would do. As a talking tree, what you want to do is say, Hey, farm boy, fetch me that pitcher and bring some water. Water me, fertilize me, help me to be a healthy tree so I might grow the oranges I am purposed for. You see, it's dirty deeds, and I know my senior minister, Ian Barnett, loves a good old music reference, and of course we have that song, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. These are cheap deeds. It's a cheap shortcut to say to the farm boy, go and buy some oranges and hang them on my branches. The investment is make me healthy that I might produce fruits. Now, I don't mean to be insulting, because I know many of us do wonderful good deeds, and they don't come cheaply. Often they come through personal sacrifice. But what God is looking for is that we first surrender ourselves to him. That the greatest cost of all is acknowledged in Jesus dying for us, that we give our life over to him and now under his lordship and by faith in him, we produce. To have deeds without faith are dirty deeds and they are done more cheaply than deeds that come as the fruit of faith. The message is not do more stuff. The message is not even make sure you go and feed all the hungry people and make sure that they're clothed and warm. That might be something to do. But scripture also says, hey, look, sometimes the best thing to do for a hungry person or an unclothed person is to encourage them to get a job. These things both exist in scripture. What the scriptures tell us is look to Jesus, understand his person, understand his mind, have faith in him, and now act upon that look to jesus trust his direction and do that thing the message is not just do more things it's not just have more deeds it's check that your faith is the kind of faith that is real it if it is real it will direct you beyond tough circumstance if it is real it will direct your decision beyond favoritism and onto jesus priorities and here if it is real your faith will produce action which will include serving some more 
more sacrificially and contending with others more vigorously. These are the words written by a man whose life would end because he contended for his faith so vigorously that those who contended with him took him to the top of a temple and threw him 50 feet down that he would die. He didn't die, and so they stoned him to death. But his faith was active in sacrificial service and in vigorously contending for what he knew to be true. The message is living faith takes effect. And perhaps that's demonstrated so well in James' third example of demonic faith. Have a look at verse 19. In verse 19 we read, You believe there is one God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now James' uh, original audience are predominantly Jewish people. And so he quotes to them their creed, what's known as the Shema, recorded in Deuteronomy 6.4. Every morning in the Jewish world, someone would come out and announce, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That was their central belief. He said, well, even the demons know that. And they shudder. But we all know that the demons aren't saved. The demons stand condemned. What's wrong with their faith? The problem with their faith is that it's informed, but it's not transformed. They have a faith that is information to them, but brings no transformation to them. Their faith is not alive. It doesn't direct their thoughts. It doesn't direct their decisions. And it hasn't shaped their activity. It hasn't led them to repentance. And so they stay condemned. So perhaps that's today's message. Perhaps that's what James wants us to understand from chapter 2. That living faith is transformational faith. Perhaps that's why he points us to the example of a man called Abraham. Abraham is called the father of faith. His faith or dependence on God gave rise to what he did. He was a man who was called to the awful command of sacrificing his only son in the most brutal of ways. Abraham loved his son. This was not a cheap action. This was certainly not dirty deeds done cheaply this was a man acting upon his faith as he prepared to take life from his son why would he do this well, another part of the scriptures hebrews chapter 11 informs us i paraphrase abraham was ready to sacrifice his son isaac because he believed he trusted and he depended that god could raise the dead you can read about that in hebrews 11 James goes on to give us another example, a woman called Rahab, whose faith directed her action. Rahab was a woman who risked her life, who committed treason against her own city and her own people to protect spies sent from Israel who were looking to take the city of Jericho. Why would she do that? She did it because she trusted, she had faith that God had given the spies the people of the spies, the city of Jericho. She protected them because she believed God was powerful over all things and he had decided the city would be theirs. She trusted and depended and had faith and that guided her action. So James' message is this, as far as I can see, it's all about faith. 
It's all about trust in God. It's all about dependence. It's all about a true and living faith that transforms and acts. I like to put it like this. It's all about conviction. Why conviction? Because I once heard it said, a belief is something you have. A conviction is something that has you. It has you. It shapes you. It changes your thoughts, your decisions, and indeed your actions. So what do you do with this information? What's the transformation you seek? How do I put this into practice? Well, I want to suggest that you might try a little exercise. Today, I want to invite everyone listening to take a step of nurturing your faith, to moving to a step where your dependence on God will grow, your trust in God will mature, and your independence might have to take a hit for that. And so what you might try is maybe thinking, or if you're that way inclined, even listing some of the things you trust in, some of the things that you feel make you strong. And maybe think about which one of those things could I let go of or even relinquish a little, making myself just a little vulnerable and ask God to be in that space instead. Certainly to ask God to have lordship over those things. Now I say you can work that out because it's potentially dangerous if I start prescribing the things that you should let go and take on and things like that because I don't want this to be a you should have more deeds. I want this to be about you should have living faith. But there is a space I want to talk into specifically. I want to talk to some who might be watching this morning who I think could take a, a wonderful step of faith that I got to take some years ago. I, I spoke about a little bit earlier at, at age 16. What if you, like me, are a, or like I certainly was, are a person that has a basic belief? What if you, like me, don't deny the God stuff, you believe God is real? What if that faith sprung to life today? What if today, moving from, yeah, I believe God is real, to taking the next logical step to say, and I'm not him. God is real, and I'm not him. What if faith sprung to life a step further, and you said, God is real, and I'm not him, and he has his own views and standards? What if faith came to life and you said, God is real. I'm not him. He has his own standards. And I just know that I've fallen short of them. I know I'm not perfect. What if today faith sprung to life and you were willing to say, God is real. I'm not him. He's bigger than me. He has his own standard. I've fallen short of it. Now I want you to be brave and consider one step of enormous trust. I believe that God doesn't exist to condemn me. I believe that the God who is not me, who is bigger than me, who has a standard I've fallen short of, does not want to see me condemned. I want to ask you to consider a faith step where you would say, not only does he not want to condemn me, I believe and I'm depending as I am doing that God is good and God is powerful. That the God who sent his only son to die on the cross in my place, the God who sent his Holy Spirit to raise that son from the grave is powerful to bring about new life. Would you take a step of active, living, dependent faith that says God is real. I'm not him. He's bigger than me. His standard is high. I've fallen beneath it. I trust he doesn't want to condemn me for that. I depend and believe 
that by Jesus' death and resurrection, he is able, powerful and loving and good to save me. And if you believe all of those things, I wonder if your faith will drive your action this morning to take a step of faith, to hand your life, the good, the bad and the ugly, over to the God who doesn't seek to condemn, but is powerful to save and loving enough to do it. Here's our step of action. I'm going to pray that prayer to God. If faith has sprung to life in you today, then why don't you pray with me and we'll say amen at the end. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that you are God and we are not. We know that you're bigger than us. We believe you have a standard, a measure that you would have for our life. And it doesn't take a huge step of faith, God, for us to know that we've fallen short of that. God, give us boldness and courage now to step beyond ourselves, to not try and outdo you, but to depend that you don't want to condemn us for our shortcoming, to trust that you are powerful and loving enough to save us. And so, Father God, right now we take a step of faith. Rather than trusting in our own merit and the good things we can do, we trust that you are the God who saves when people put their faith in Jesus. And so our faith action step now is we hand you our life. We ask that you save us and that you make us your children and that you grow in us a faith in you that will direct us through every circumstance, through every thought, through every decision, and that will drive every action. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.